his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. It is 8.09 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you along with uh, our producer, Jonathan Lowe. And it is my pleasure to talk this hour with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College, a political scientist, who I even had the pleasure of talking with for quite a while. It's been a while. It has been a while. And it's great to have you on. And I do, you know, a, a bunch of things I want to ask you about because there is a lot going on this year, isn't there? Oh, <laughs> you could say that. You could say that. Uh, but first, um, and one of the things I do want to ask you about is that you and, and uh, you are the co-author of a book that I think probably was really the first sort of major book to come out on the Trump presidency. Yeah. And you, you guys really pumped it out and got it out. It's been out now for a while. How difficult is that? And, and, you know, now that you look as the evolution of the presidency continues, are, are, are some of the themes that were established early on carrying through? Yeah, well, first, it was a very difficult book to write because we're basically writing it in real time as events occur. We're trying to, you know, uh, catch up on things as we're writing about them. And, of course, there's so much confusion about what was going on in the Trump White House during his first year that uh, we had real trouble parsing through all the media to figure out what was reliable information and what wasn't. Uh, So, yeah, it was a difficult book to write, no question about that. Uh, But a lot of the themes that we saw early in the Trump presidency are still with us. I mean, uh, the president's personality is not going to change anytime soon, and that has a huge effect on his administration. It leads to... um, uh, you know, a, a real focus on the media by the president himself, um, and I think a very insecure staff that is prone to leak right, left, and forwards and backwards. And uh, that was true uh, when we were writing the book, and I think it's true now. And, and that's something. I, I mean, I think that we continue to see, uh, and, and the fact that you know, I think I think there were there were some people who felt that Donald Trump would change when he went into the White House, mm-hmm. that he would become different than he was as a candidate, which it, it the office can change or mute uh, certain aspects of, of, of some individuals. That's still definitely not the case with President Trump. If anything, he seems to continue to relish uh, you know, yeah. taking his own path. Yeah, very much so. Um, I remember uh, during the campaign, he said, you know, when I'm elected, I'll be so presidential, I'll be so boring. Not, not, not. <laughs> right. That's not well, what happened. Uh, having said that, though, we do see one uh, one change that I think is a very important one, which was the arrival of General John Kelly as chief of staff. Uh, things settled down a bit and became less chaotic. Uh, that's not to say that they aren't very turbulent and surprising and upsetting. Uh, but I don't think it's quite 
quite the order of magnitude it was in the early months with Bannon and Rice Priebus bouncing around and all sorts of surprises day by day. All right. Well, and interesting that you bring up, you know, General Kelly, because there had been some speculation, although that was probably last week's speculation, that he might be in trouble because of of this, you know, the whole situation involving Rob Porter, who's technically, I think his title had been secretary and and he it's an important Mm -hmm. position. And he had uh, two of his former wives came forward with pretty detailed accounts of being physically abused. Well, pictures of and, their and, black eyes. Yes, and, and which is, I think that was the final one. And, and how exactly uh, General Kelly ha- handled that has come under fire with some people calling for him to resign. I mean, is, is that something that you is not going to stick, do you think? I, you know, I don't that? think uh, uh, the whole problem with that, I think, lies within the White House and how long it takes them to process applications for security clearances. And they've been very slow to do that. And this very slow process allowed this fellow to keep working when all these charges were there against him. So it's clearly a bad reflection on the administration, but I doubt that it'll uh, cost Kelly's job. All right. And let me ask you, one of the things that continues to sort of weave through the Trump presidency is this Russian investigation. <laughs> and, you know, this week we saw the indictment of 13 Russians, the, the president sort of almost taking a victory lap on Twitter saying, you know, ha, no, no collusion. Uh, what are your what is your take on that? Because this this clearly isn't going away anytime soon. No, it's not going away. Uh, And, uh, you know, if you look at the actual history of special counsels, they often take multiple years to conclude their uh, investigation. So I don't think we're close to the end yet. Uh, Now, so as we look at uh, the current charges, um, you've first of all got a history of of very sloppy and at times factually incorrect statements by the president about the investigation, calling it a hoax and so forth. Uh, That's clearly not the case, and and that contradicts some of the president's earlier statements. There is an important word in the disclosure that I think may indicate the direction of the special counsel in the future, and that word is an adverb, unwittingly. Uh, The special counsel describes any sort of cooperation with the uh, Russians as an unwitting thing by uh, people in the Trump campaign. Campaign. If that's the case, then there probably isn't a, 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 a real intent to collude. However, still available is the question about whether the president obstructed justice in the investigation of possible collusion. So you see that we've got a lot of things to still work through. Right. Well, and that and that is the classic that the, the, the cover up or the aftermath is in some cases we're not saying it is here, but. Yeah. can be so much worse. Yeah. Uh, there may not be a crime, but there may be obstruction of the investigation of a non-crime. <laughs> and that's a crime. Yeah. So that so anyway, yeah. it's still, it, but but let me ask you um, before we go to our, like our, our first little break here, you know, all of these things, this Russia investigation, the problems with General Kelly and, and you know, not not obviously, you know, basically not uh, – you know, condemning um, Rob Porter's, right, uh, right. you know, for uh, domestic assault. It doesn't seem to have bled in any way into his base, that, that his core of support continues to remain solid in, in, in many respects. Mm-hmm. Or do you see that changing? 
Well, you know, it's a real contrast to, say, for example, the previous Republican president, George W. Bush, whose uh, job approval fell below 30 percent, and Trump is now at 40 percent or slightly above, which he's actually up compared to the beginning right. of the year. Um, the, uh, it it seems that he's got a, a high a high floor, but he also I think as may very much has a low ceiling. There are a lot of people, perhaps a majority of the public, who will never ever approve of the way he's conducting the presidency, and that's his main political problem. All right, um, we're chatting here with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College, a political scientist. Um, in terms of um, let me ask you before we, we take a break. Um, there is obviously extraordinary reaction to this horrible tragedy mm-hmm. and, and horrible incident and shooting in Florida in which 17 people, many of them teenagers, were killed. Is there – and after each of these mass shootings, there seems to be a burst – of perhaps people speaking out, calling for things, mm-hmm. the way you see things, the way you have seen and, and, and the way these tragedies have evolved and the pushes for, for efforts and, and then the, the pushback from uh, gun rights advocates, where do you see this going? I mean, is this an opening here or is this something that's going to continue to play out and, and could take years if the opposition or, or the, the support for some kind of control gun control measures, um, is that going to happen at any point, or are we just going to kind of is it going to be status quo? Well, I think you uh, put it right when you said it will take years because uh, uh, there's uh, clearly no inclination in Congress to make a move to uh, restrict the uh, sale or availability of the AR-15 rifle. There are 13.7 million AR-15 rifles in circulation wow. in America. So you can imagine uh, the controversy involved in trying to either ban the weapon or more incrementally limit access to the weapon. Now, the, the AR-15, by the way, was illegal under federal law. It was illegal to purchase from 1994 to 2004. But, you know, now in the last 14 years, it's become one of the most popular rifles in America for sportsmen and so forth. Um, so that makes it a very difficult political issue. All right. All right. We are chatting with Professor Stephen Shear. We are going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I want to run through all of the races that, that are going to be going on here in Minnesota from the governor's race. You've got, we've got two Senate races. We've got an ex- extraordinary uh, array of congressional races that are going to be very tight. And that's just expanded within the past 10 days with the announcement by Congressman Nolan that he is going to be retiring. So keep it right here, folks. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 822 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. Uh, I, I'd like to run down your and get your take on on these all these races in Minnesota that we're going to be facing in November. A lot of uh, money has to be raised. Conventions are coming up. Let me ask you first of all about the governor's race uh, and Tim Pawlenty. <laughs> uh, do you know? I sort of thought there might be an announcement this past week 
Yeah, I, I did too, and you wonder what he's doing uh, because he has already left his previous position, which does suggest that he's moving in a direction towards a run. Uh, he's supposedly meeting with people and so forth, but so far there's been uh, no announcement. So it's very curious. But if he does run, what's going to be interesting, I think, and not as easy to predict, is what the public reception would be about the return of Tim Pawlenty to Minnesota politics. Uh, you know, having been a head of a financial services trade group in Washington, um, he was they, a lo- he was a paid lobbyist yeah, for, for big banks. Yeah, and and I mean the ads against him sort of write themselves, and so you wonder how he plans to get around uh, being uh, portrayed uh, by his opponents, both in the Republican Party and Democratic Party, as a DC swamp creature. Right. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And I just I just thought that he was going to make an announcement this past week. I mean, it's got to come pretty soon, doesn't it? It does. Um, uh, uh, it seems to me pretty clear he's not focusing on the endorsement, the party endorsement, but rather uh, moving to a primary uh, where I think he probably would be favored in a primary. Uh, you have to look at the other Republican candidates so far. And one way to tell if they are really popular in Republican circles is to look at their fundraising. And all of them, including Jeff Johnson, the current frontrunner, have very anemic fundraising uh, totals. There's also very low turnout, I think 11,000 statewide at the GOP caucuses. So uh, this does suggest that there's an opening for an alternative to the current field, and I think Pawlenty sees that. In terms of um you know, and that remains an if, as I said, you know, a lot of people thought he was going to make some kind of announcement last week. Yeah. Um, in terms of the Democratic field, uh, an interesting dynamic there because Tim Walls, who appears to be the front runner, if you go by the caucuses, mm-hmm. it, it may be too conservative uh, to win, you know, the party's nomination. Well, we'll see about that. I mean, he's halfway to the endorsement with 31 percent in the caucuses. Uh, what's really interesting is what will happen now to uh, the support for Chris Coleman and Paul Tissen, who are both Twin Cities liberals who have dropped out of the race. Will their supporters now go to another Twin City region uh, liberal uh, like Rebecca Otto or Aaron Murphy, or will they go towards the front runner Tim Waltz? Uh, that bears very close watching because their movement could determine whether Waltz has a pretty easy ride to the endorsement or faces a huge battle. Right. And, and Tim Walls has also indicated that uh, if need be, if he doesn't get the endorsement, he's going to go to the primary. Yeah. Yeah. So. And he has a lot of money uh, and uh, a lot of endorsements. And of course, Mark Dayton proved that you can ignore the endorsement process, win the primary and become governor. Right. And uh, there you go. So yeah. that, that, that may be that may be. Uh, Representative Walls' trademark, but I think everybody is waiting for Tim Pawlenty. I mean, at what point, and granted if he doesn't get the nominating commission, I mean, at what point do you think is the drop-dead point where you, you have to be in? Well, actually, I think it's this summer when you have to register uh, as a candidate. So he could, you think he could do it that late? I think he could, but I don't think he will. I think he'll get a decision one way or the other in the next month or so because you have to raise money, you have to go out and begin a public campaign, and that's very time and labor intensive. And, you know, it's really extraordinary to think, you know, that Governor Pawlenty was the last person 
to win, the last Republican to win a statewide race, and that was in 2006. Yeah, you and, think, and that was a long time ago. A that, lot has changed since 2006. That's right. George W. Bush was president, you know. Right. Uh, so uh, you'd think the Republican Party would take note of that, that it's been, what, uh, 12 years since they've won any statewide office, and maybe they need to rethink who they're nominating. And that's probably what Palendi's message would be if he were to run. I'm not sure that he is the solution to that problem, but he will present himself as the solution to that problem. All right. And of course, the last person to run for governor against Governor Mark Dayton was Jeff Johnson. Right. And he, he didn't do five he, points. Yeah. And he, he, you know, he did not, um, he was not able to, to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that um, obviously we have an extraordinary situation um, at, at a number of levels here. Uh, and I think that um, perhaps what we'll do, Steve, is we, if we can take a break, we've got to give you some weather, and the weather is pretty dicey. Is it okay down where you are so far? Yeah, yeah it is, but I'm expecting the worst. Okay, all right. Well, we'll <laughs> give it to you. But but one of the things that's so interesting about this year is really this extraordinary development. I still find it difficult to believe that you know, Al Franken's seat is open now, essentially, even though Senator Smith is in there. Um, you also have Senator Klobuchar running. You also have this extraordinary development. The 8th Congressional District uh, was making it an open seat with Rick Nolan retiring. You've got the 1st Congressional District, Representative Walls' district, which is open. You've got the 3rd uh, and the 2nd now that, that appear to be up for grabs, even though there are incumbents there. A lot to talk about with Professor Stephen Shear. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll give you some weather, and then we'll come back uh, in the next half hour with Professor Shear's analysis on all of these big races that Minnesota voters will decide in November. It's 8.34 in the Twin Cities. That's May Murphy along with producer Jonathan Lowe. Uh, chatting with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College, a political scientist. Let me ask you, uh, Professor Shear, your thoughts on this extraordinary, unexpected Senate race between Tina Smith and it looks like State Senator Karen Housley, she got in right away and no one else came in. Boy, this one is really difficult to uh, assess because Tina Smith never runs, uh, you know, for any office in her own right. She's really unknown. She was uh, on the ticket with Mark Dayton, but everyone was voting for governor and not thinking about lieutenant governor. Uh, She uh, very much is known as a uh, Twin Cities resident and a strong liberal. The question for her is how does she do in the suburbs, exurbs, and greater Minnesota, where she's not well known. And of course, uh, she will be controversial in some of the more conservative areas of the state because of her time as a vice president of Planned Parenthood of Minnesota. Karen Housley's never run for anything outside of her state Senate district. Now, she is the spouse of a famous hockey player. And which, which doesn't hurt in Minnesota. Does not hurt, and it probably doesn't hurt in greater Minnesota and northern no. Minnesota in particular. Um, the real question for Housley is, can she raise enough money uh, to be fully competitive? Because... Um, For example, Mike McFadden, when he was running against Al Franken recently, uh, really wasn't financially competitive with Franken. Um, And I think that's going to be one of the big challenges for Housley because there are so many competitive Senate races across the country that her ability to bring in a chunk of that cash is very much in question. Yet I I think people are looking at this, and this really 
the fact that this is virtually an open seat was such a shock yes. and, and remains a shock. I mean, it, it happened so fast. Uh, and it it doesn't look like, though, that anybody else is going to jump into this race. Anybody else of significance is going to r- jump into this race at this point. No, I think you've got the two candidates for the November balloting right now in Housley and Tina Smith. Right. Uh, so that, that will be interesting as well. Um, obviously, uh, Senator Klobuchar is up for re-election, and I think nobody's talking about her race because I think most people consider her a shoo-in. Yeah, I think that that's a safe call. Uh, uh, her opponent has raised very little money and is a pretty obscure individual, and uh, uh, no one's really expecting that to be a competitive race. Um, and she was, I think, in the last election, she actually won, um, and she is the Republican opponent, uh, is Representative Jim Newberger, who, as you said, is, right. is even amongst the, the vast and huge Minnesota legislature, uh, is definitely not very well known at all. No. Um, and I think the last time that, that Senator Klobuchar won, she won every county in Minnesota except for two. Yes. And uh, uh, at this point, she seems to be the most popular uh, politician in the state, just judging by the surveys that register job approval. And it uh, looks like she'll have an easy time of it. So what's interesting about Amy Klobuchar is what are her national plans? Would she run for president? Would she like to be vice president on a 2020 Democratic ticket? We'll have to watch that. Right. Um, is there a possibility? I mean, does she help Tina Smith? Possibly. I mean, mean, is there an Amy Klobuchar coattail effect here? Well, you know, coattail effects are very hard to find nowadays because, uh, you know, people aren't voting party the way they used to. And uh, probably the plurality preference amongst Minnesotans now is politically independent, and they go every which way. So I would not, if I were Tina Smith, be counting on Klobuchar coattails. Um. Let's talk about some of these congressional races. The, the biggest bombshell here mm-hmm. is that 8th Congressional District, which no one – I mean Congressman Nolan was sending out fundraising requests the day and appeals to caucus for him days before he made this stunning announcement that he was retiring. Uh, so you've got an open seat here. What are your thoughts about this? Because this is not an easy district to run in because of its size and the fact that it, it embraces you know, a, a two different – major media markets. Well, it, ra- it it basically ranges from Elk River to the Canadian border. <laughs> I mean, that is a pretty big area. Right. And uh, then all the, and all the way over, you know, to, to Wisconsin in the east. I mean, it's it's just it's a big district. Yeah. Now, the western and southern parts of the district are Republican. And as the northern Minnesota and the Iron Range has lost population, the district has moved south and west. And now uh, the latest partisan voter index gives the Republicans a 4% margin in that district. It's an R plus 4 district, which makes it based on recent voting trends, more Republican than the 1st District or the 2nd District or the 3rd District. Wow. <laughs> so the question is whether Republicans can take advantage of this, and that will really depend on the candidates and the campaigns. Right. I mean, there is a, a Republican who who is running already, Pete Stauber, who is a right. county commissioner, um, and it's not clear um, – you know, it's just not clear if any big names are going to come in. Um, well, Stuart Mills has said he's reconsidering. He's reconsidering. Yeah. Speaker Dowd has said, uh, as recently as I think I interviewed him Monday, mm-hmm. said he's not sure 
he hasn't ruled out running for either governor or the eighth district. <laughs> so he's got to, he's got to winnow that down a little bit, and I he's got a big so. job ahead of him. But yeah, either way, it'd be a big uh, a big challenge for him. So it's awfully late for him to be so indecisive. Right, um, and then we have Leah Pfeiffer, who's, who's a, uh, was challenging Congressman Nolan on from the left, mm-hmm. but it's not clear if somebody's going to jump in there. And and they've got to do this. Yesterday, don't they? Yeah, yeah. This is really late. Uh, you know, it was a late and surprising announcement. It obviously gives some advantage to Stauber because he's already in the field and has been working at developing a campaign. But all these Democrats have to jump in now, and there are at least three of them. You know, who are uh, who are, and it may be even more crowded primary than that. Uh, who are fighting for endorsement and primary victory? So uh, it's very, very difficult uh, to uh, parse this right now. Things are still taking shape. Right, and obviously the swing nature of that district is pretty unusual because it's it's pretty unusual, isn't it, to have like a, a district that's going to can flip-flop from Republican to Democrat, but this has done it a few times. Right. Well, not only that, but presidentially, it went for Obama twice, and then Trump carried it by 16 points. Go right. figure. So <laughs> um, mercurial, to say the least. Yeah. Obviously, you've got that first district op- open as well. I mean, to have, you know, we're in the scheme of things, you know, Minnesota has eight members of Congress to have two open congressional seats. I mean, that's pretty unusual, isn't it? It is. And uh, now that is truly a swing district. Uh, partisan voter indexes, Republicans have a 1% advantage. So that, uh, that's a wide open race. Uh, it looks like Jim Hagedorn uh, may be the Republican nominee, although he has opposition. Uh, and and uh, Hagedorn did pretty darn well. Yeah. In the yeah. Last... Well, it was a big surprise. He yeah. lost by just a handful of votes. Right. Uh, and I think that's one of the big reasons Tim Waltz is running for governor <laughs> is that he had such a tough time in 2016. Right. I mean, it was only, I think, a couple, a few thousand votes. Right. So, um, and, it, and it was decided very late in the evening. Right. Um, there are also, um, you know, in terms of the scheme of things, there's going to be a rematch, it looks like, in the second district between uh, Congressman Jason Lewis and Angie Craig. Yes. Um this is this is really interesting because Congressman Lewis, while some Republicans have been shying away from the president, not Congressman Lewis. I mean, he really seems to have aligned himself very solidly with President Trump. Right. Now, Trump only carried that district by 1%. So it's truly a swing district. Uh, the partisan voter index is Republicans have a two percentage point advantage. But this is one of those that could go either way. Now, last time... Um, Jason Lewis won despite being uh, severely outspent by over two to one by Angie Craig, the Democrat. Uh, will that happen again? If so, he'll be in danger. And and that was really a shock because there were polls that suggested that that she might be ahead. I mean, when it when it comes to these rematches, I mean, we saw it in the eighth congressional district where um, Stuart Mills took on Rick Nolan twice in a row and, and lost both times. I mean. In rematches, do people have 
can people come back and, and oh, win yeah. the second time? Oh, yes, and that's been known to happen more than once in the history of congressional elections. But uh, I think you also have to keep in mind the national environment in which a race occurs. And usually the first midterm election for a president is bad for the president's party. So that may boost the uh, opportunities for Democrats in all of these close races. Right. And, and we do want to get you know, to the third district as well. But you know, going back to the eighth, Last year, or last in 2016, that was, I think, the fifth most expensive president or uh, congressional race in the country yeah. in excess of $21 million. With all of this stuff going on, is there just a finite amount of money <laughs> that, that can come in here, or, or is. Well, is, is you know the, the potential to you know swing both the House or the Senate you know in Washington? Will we see that money come in because the. These are genuinely things that are up for grabs, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we'll see a lot of money come in, but there are two problems with the money in this ra- in a race like that. First of all, you don't know the money totals until at, well after the race is completed. So you have no idea in real time what, what's happening. Uh, second of all, a lot of the money now, an increasing percentage of the money, is not spent by the candidate campaigns themselves, but right. by party organizations or interest groups. And figuring out who's saying, what about whom in the midst of a campaign is practically impossible. Uh, how about the third congressional district? Because you have uh, Eric, in Eric Paulson, you know, a candidate who has won handily. He defeated a very popular, uh, well-known state senator. Terry Bonoff was really, I think, fairly well-known. Right, uh, right. And, uh, you know, he beat her handily. Yeah, by yet, more than 10 percent. More than 10 percent. So an easy win there. But at the same time, Hillary Clinton won that district. I know. So, so it, I mean, and the Cook <laughs> Political Report has just moved this into the toss-up category. It does look like businessman uh, Dean Phillips, uh, philanthropist, uh, is going to be the likely nominee. He had an interesting strategy. Um, he actually set up a fish house on Lake Minnetonka today and said it's going to be his newest campaign office <laughs> and invited constituents to come in. I think that's a jab at Paulson, who's been criticized for his failure to have, you know, town hall meetings. Yeah. You, you, yeah. What is your take on this district? Because Eric Paulson has won easily in, in all his reelection bids. Right. Uh, well, the district is R plus two, even though Hillary carried it. So it's a swing district. Um, he has been, he's well-funded, uh, and he's been able to beat quality opponents in the past. So uh, if I would say this, if the Democrats win that, I think it's an upset. Right. Because and certainly Dean Phillips has his resources, but he is definitely uh, somebody who, as I said, you know, just in terms of some of these national you know, uh, groups that rate races, right. that has suddenly moved into a toss-up category. So remains to be seen. But he has been very strong. And, and again, I, I do think that Terry Bonoff uh, is somebody who was certainly very well-known, I think, well, at least very in able candidate. Yes. And uh, frankly, I think she would be the member of Congress from that district if she had been nominated when she first ran and was when uh, uh, Eric Paulson was first running. Instead, Ashwin Medea was the nominee and Paulson beat him.
All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back with Professor Shear, we want to get his take on the upcoming legislative session. Keep it right here. News Radio 830 WCC. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's 849 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor Stephen Shear, for some final thoughts. I do want to give a shout out to the producer of this show, David Josephson, for his work. And also to studio coordinator and producer Jonathan Lowe, uh, Professor Shear, your take on the legislature. Uh, it starts on Tuesday, and I got to tell you, I went to the preview, mm-hmm. which was uh, the governor uh, and the speaker of the House, Kurt Dowd, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Gazelka, was there, and then the two minority leaders were there: uh, Representative Melissa Hortman uh, from the House, and also uh, Senator Bach uh, from the Senate. And everybody professed to love each other. They didn't really say love, but um, they took a you know, <laughs> doubt, took a selfie with him and the governor, and it, it seemed a little disingenuous, to be very honest. Well, uh, given what's happened, yes, and, and the, the, the rhetoric funded the legislature last session. Heavens, right? Um, I mean, what what do you see happening here? And and of course, you know this is important because you know the legislature is up as well. Yeah, yeah, the uh, state house is up, and the Republicans have a twenty seat majority. But you know, if it's a Democratic year, that could be in jeopardy. We'll have to see. I think the main question about this legislative session is who is in control of the state Senate. This is a complicated situation involving uh, Michelle Fishbach, who is lieutenant governor and senator right now, claiming to hold right. both jobs. Uh, if the courts say she can't do that, she'll have to resign as lieutenant governor, run in a special election to be reelected to the Senate, and that will occur in the middle of the session. If that happens and she's uh, out of the Senate running for uh, a Senate seat, the Senate will be tied 33-33 Democrat and Republican. How many many weeks will that be occurring during the session? Who knows? Can the Senate function when it's tied? I don't know. <laughs> right, right. And and she she did, you know, for people who are following this closely, because it is a complicated situation, she did, there was one legal challenge that's already kind of come and gone, and basically everyone is expecting additional legal challenges. Oh, yeah. And, and there are a number of legal experts who say she can't do both. Right, um, right. But, you know, the first legal challenge, she did weather that storm. So that's going to be tricky as well. How about this tension, though, amongst the leadership? Because you've got kind of this triangular relationship here between Kurt Speaker Doubt, uh, the minority leader, Senator Bach, the governor. Um, you've got Gazelka, who's sort of, you know, out, outside the group. It, it, it does seem just a little crazy here. Right. Well, Gazelka is trying to keep uh, keep peace. peace amongst warring factions, and uh, we'll see if that can occur. The main job, of course, is a bonding bill, and there'll be disagreement about what projects to include in the bonding bill, how much the bonding bill should be. It requires a 60 percent approval in both the House and the Senate, so it has to be bipartisan. So there will be that battle. The other major issue is conforming the Minnesota tax code to the new federal tax code. You know, yes. the tax 
tax reform of December uh, 2017 is one of the biggest tax uh, bills we've seen in decades. It's completely changing the federal tax system, and uh, Minnesota has to comply or else uh, everybody's taxes in Minnesota, state taxes, will go way up under the new federal system. I'm pretty sure uh, lawmakers don't want that to happen. Absolutely. And, and that is something. And actually, you, you bring a, a, up a very good point here, because this federal tax bill, which has been enacted, there are certain there are a lot of questions as to exactly how that is going to impact you know, things across the board, both right. at the federal level and at the state level. Mm-hmm. And it's not exactly clear if some of the projections that Republicans are counting on in terms of the stimulus to the economy actually will happen. Right. And and that that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big one. That, that That's kind of the macro picture here that I think and, – and I'm glad you raised it because it's something that we all need to be looking at very, very carefully. But the states do have to respond and, and in some ways the way – in some ways Minnesota may have to respond – you know, more than other states because of the way some things are actually set up here. Right. And you've got a Democratic governor and at this point, Republican control of the legislature, and they've got to work this out in a way that uh, doesn't uh, produce huge problems for Minnesota taxpayers. So that's what that I think is one of the big challenges. And the other point that I think you're bringing up here is that the uh, effect of the tax bill will have an effect on the November elections. Uh, If the economy is doing very well, that's the best thing Republicans could have going for them, because it's unlikely Trump will be wildly popular next fall. uh, And uh, usually the president's party loses seats congressionally and often at the state level. Uh, in midterm elections. So uh, Republicans are betting a lot on the economy and on that tax bill. Right. And, and again, it, 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 and it's, it, it's a big gamble for them because, you know, for so many years you've had Republicans, you know, say that, that they were the party of, of, you know, reducing the deficit. And by all accounts, if this doesn't work, the deficit here is going to balloon. Oh, well, the deficit's going to balloon. That That's one thing I think you can be certain of, that it'll be $900 billion to a trillion for the foreseeable future every year. And uh, you have to wonder over time, when does that begin to matter? Everybody says deficits don't matter. That's true until they do. When do they, <laughs> that's when a do good they, line. <laughs> yeah, when do they, eventually I would think they would start to matter, and we have to hope it's later rather than sooner. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, listen, um, Professor Stephen Shear, thank you so much for coming on. We certainly appreciate your, ins- your insights. And what is really going to be, it's really an extraordinary year. I mean, no, it's not a presidential year, but I- I'm not sure that there's ever been a year where, where there's been so much going on when it's not a presidential year. Right. And so much that's unpredictable between now and November. Right. You know, with the two Senate races and it's just a really remarkable situation. Thank you so much. Sir. We really appreciate your time this evening. Happy to do it. Thank Absolutely. You. Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. And again, uh, no, it is not a presidential year, but really uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary situation uh, with some of these elections. And I do think, you know, interesting to talk with Professor Shear about the fact that, that there are finite resources in terms of campaign spending. I do think we are going to see an onslaught of spending here in Minnesota because there just aren't that many open congressional seats and or possible toss-up seats, or two Senate races, uh, that's remarkable in and of itself. Uh, And the governor's race, of course. All right, well, listen, I do want to give a shout-out 
to David Josephson, uh, the producer of this show, for doing such a great job. Also, Jonathan Lowe, our producer here in studio. Please tune in to WCCO Sunday morning. Uh, Mike Augustinak is off, but Kylie Burse will be there bright and early at 6 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. The forecast is volatile, folks. I know that I've been reading uh, the information from the National Weather Service. This is the kind of forecast that shifts and changes, and Kylie, I know, will be in early to break that down. Also want to let you know that Dean Phillips, who is challenging uh, in the 3rd Congressional District, he will be a live guest. And then also we will have... Uh, Senator Chris Eaton and Representative Dave Baker, two legislators who have dealt with personal tragedies, both had adult children that they lost to opioid overdoses, and they are teaming up for a, a really breakthrough bill, they say, that could help with this problem. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.